Dr. Susan Varghese is a London-based general practitioner, a family physician. Over the past 20 years in the UK, she has worked extensively in internal medicine, general practice, and corporate wellness. She has a special interest in women's health, particularly menopause and ADHD and lifestyle medicine. Her interest in ADHD stems from her own personal experience and awareness of ADHD traits, which became apparent in perimenopause during the COVID lockdown. She provides an ADHD menopause coaching and advisory service to women navigating the double whammy of ADHD and hormones using an evidence-based holistic lifestyle approach. Dr. Varghese has had an international upbringing, having lived in Dubai, Asia, and Europe, and works with coaching clients from all over the world. An interesting fact about Dr. Varghese, she is one of an identical twin, enjoys painting, drawing, and learning new languages in her spare time. And I wanted to give another interesting fact. Today, as of this upload of this podcast, it is her birthday, Dr. Varghese. And it's not only her birthday, it is Lorraine's birthday, my daughter's birthday. She is now nine years old. And we found out earlier in the week that they have the same birthdays. And they were able to talk to each other about it. And it was it was so cool for them to already figure something out that they had in common. So Dr. Varghese, thank you so much for just taking the time to be on here and answering questions and putting so much time and effort into this topic. Because I know a lot of us women, we have a lot of questions in general about this sort of thing. And it's it's hard to navigate this double whammy. So I hope you have a happy birthday. Have a wonderful day. And thank you again. We hope you enjoy the show. Dr. Varghese, thank you so much for being on the show today. We have been so excited to discuss on this very specific topic because I know that we have a lot of questions anyway about this since learning more about it months ago about how our hormones and estrogen can affect our dopamine and serotonin and it's difficult because it's like well, what do we do about it but do you first want to share how you got started with being so passionate about this topic with women and hormones and adhd Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Brittany and Tish, for having me. It's such a pleasure to uh, be on this podcast with you both. Uh, and thank you so much for the good work that you do in the ADHD space. Uh, I guess my interest, I mean, I, I'm a general practitioner or a family physician by background uh, and uh, got an interest, special interest in women's health. My particular interest with the overlap of uh, kind of ADHD and hormones uh, stems from my own personal experience uh, when I started to notice some ADHD traits in myself uh, when I was going through perimenopause. And this was just a couple of years ago you know, kind of the during the COVID lockdown. And I just started to realize there was such a huge overlap between uh, some of the symptoms of, you know, how a woman would present with ADHD and also how the impact of hormones can affect uh, ADHD and vice versa. Uh, so that's when I started, uh, you know, when I looked out there, you know, the research was pretty scanty. There was not much done in this field. Uh, and, you know, so I started and because I had time on my hands during the lockdown, I started doing my own research, uh, to be honest. And uh, some of the things that I found was really interesting. Uh, and what I actually found was, you know, the the dopamine is the main neurotransmitter that becomes low in women with ADHD, and that is the main contributory factor for a lot of the symptoms with uh, or problems with executive functioning. You know, you know the inattention, the impulsivity, and so forth. Uh, but what I didn't realize before I started doing the research was how estrogen, the female hormone, is closely linked to this kind of dopamine, uh, and which means as a result the ADHD symptoms can fluctuate a lot depending on where you are with your hormones. And the specific periods of uh, kind of hormonal fluctuations like puberty, uh, pregnancy, childbirth, premenstrual, uh, perimenopause, menopause, all of these things can have a huge impact on you know, how your hormones present and how the ADHD manifests during that period. So 
so it's from my own research uh, that I started to uh, find this correlation and that's where my interest started. And, uh, you know, I think I'm just curious and I started finding more and more links between the two. So that's that was the start of my journey, to be honest. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast and also with your wealth, bringing your wealth of knowledge um, on this topic. We are looking forward to learning more from you and really just diving into um, a lot of different questions that we often get, Brittany and myself, we often get um, from, you know, um, other people who have ADHD and a lot of it comes from hormones. How does ADHD you know, our hormones affect ADHD or impact ADHD. And so one of the questions that we received is, um, is does hormones during your cycle make your ADHD symptoms worse? And if so, how does all of that work? Why does it make it worse? Hmm. Okay. Thank you, Tish, uh, for having me. Uh, and so th to answer your question, yes, you know, hormones during the menstrual cycle of a woman can definitely make ADD symptoms worse. Uh, when you look at the menstrual cycle, you've got two halves to the menstrual cycle. So you've got the first 14 days. I mean, we're referring to a typical 28-day cycle. I mean, and not what most women have this typical 28 days, they tend to have shorter or longer cycles. But if you were to look at a typical 28 day cycle, the first two weeks or the first 14 days before ovulation is when uh, women with ADHD do really well because the estrogen peaks during this period. So their productivity improves, their focus is high. So if you had any uh, you know, kind of heavy deadlines you needed to get to, you needed to have an important project you wanted to finish, uh, or if you needed to make really important or big decisions, I would probably suggest taking it during that first half. Uh, once you ovulate, which is classically day 14 of a 28-day cycle, and then you go into the second half of your cycle, that's when this kind of if you look at your menstrual cycle as a motor machine, the motor starts to wind down and the estrogen, which is the female hormone, starts to plummet and the progesterone, which is the other female hormone, starts to peak. Uh, estrogen has a very volatile relationship with dopamine, which is the uh, neurotransmitter or the chemical messenger, which is classically low in women with ADHD. So when the estrogen becomes low during the second half and specifically uh, the week before the period, so what, you know, some researchers call it the danger week. So that is kind of when it can exacerbate symptoms of ADHD, especially the forgetfulness, the irritability, the impulsivity, and also the emotional dysregulation. So, you know, it can become very snappy, very tearful. Uh, and, you know, PMS or premenstrual syndrome is a mild form of the uh, premenstrual symptoms. And that on a highly exploded scale is your PMDD. Uh, so which is the premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And that is a hormonal link between the hormones. So, and again, when they did studies, they found uh, women with uh, ADHD and even autism, they were more predisposed to having PMS and PMDD. Uh, I know Attitude, they did a survey recently and they found that 100% of menstruating women definitely had PMS. And then you have a smaller proportion who get the PMDD. So that's a huge number of ADHD women out there. And that's kind of every month of the year. So you can imagine, so 12 months, half the time, you're probably going to be not at your peak. So you know, you have to factor in and cater in for those two weeks, or even if you were to hone it down, I, I would say the danger week. So you need to know what to do, what not to do. Yes, and it is it is so frustrating as women to to know this because we go through these fluctuations for what seems like our entire lives basically. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's hard to say, you know, well, how am I able to help with this when this is a natural process that we go through? This is something that is experienced throughout our, our entire lives. And so often what we hear is you know in the days mm -hmm. leading up to your menstrual cycle mm -hmm. there can be depression there can be anxiety so you had mentioned um you know not being quite as motivated mm -hmm. um you know a lot of emotional dysregulation and i think i think a lot of our questions are you know is there anything that we can do to help with this at yeah. all, i mean at all 
I mean, there are a lot of things that can be done and they don't all have to be medications that we are talking about. You know, it could, I would probably just go back to basics and start from ground zero. So, you know, it would be looking at lifestyle changes to start with, you know, it would be things like your sleep, for example, things like exercise and movement. Uh, it could be your nutrition. You know, nutrition would play a huge part, uh, I would say, in this So. Uh, uh, the diet needs to be kind of taken care of and looked into. Also things like stimulants, so stimulants like your caffeine, your nicotine, alcohol is a major one uh, because it's, alcohol is a downer. It worsens your anxiety and lowers your mood. So if there's a woman with ADHD and has PMS and even PMDD, uh, you know, they can become more anxious. They can start to feel depressed during this time. I mean, they did some studies. They found, you know, uh, small proportion of women with PMDD, they became suicidal, you know, in that danger week, the week before the period. So, you know, if there are kind of uh, psychiatric symptoms at this time as well, you know, it may, there may be a role for antidepressants like the SSRIs because they help with the serotonin, which is the other neurotransmitter or chemical messenger that estrogen has an impact on. It could be also if you're on birth control. So if you're talking about the younger woman, it might be the birth control. Uh, the hormonal contraception can help kind of regulate uh, the estrogen progesterone balance, you know, in ADHD, especially during the cycles. And if it's a slightly older woman, sort of in your 40s or 50s and perimenopausal, it might mean that your HRT, which is the hormone therapy, might need to be tailored you know, during the cycles of fluctuations. So there are a lot of things that can be done, but, you know, there is no one answer to it all. It all depends on the woman, depends on the history. Uh, but, you know, this is basically, I mean, we are in for, a, a, you know, this is a large part of your life. I would probably say your reproductive, you know, women start periods, you know, as early as 10 or, you know, and they could reach menopause at 50. So we're talking about 40 years, which is half your lifespan where you're going to go through this upheaval so I think even coming to terms and probably preparation and planning and kind of anticipating this would kind of help because then you know you're not going to pack in social events in that second half of your cycle you know when you know you're going to be depressed or kind of snappy or you know that's the last thing you want to do you just want to curl up in bed with a hot mug of cocoa or you know watch Netflix I don't know so so you would kind of make adjustments to your life I mean again it's easier said than done you know if you have kids if you have parents if you're in a job you know you can't afford to take a week off work but it's kind of factoring all these things into your life so you know that these things can have an impact with the dopamine and the estrogen yeah you know <clears throat> I really like how you said that it can look different for different you know across the board. I mean, what works for one person may not work for the other person. And I know in previous recordings and, and our episodes, we've mentioned that before. And so um, I'm glad that you said that, um, that it really just depends on the person on what really works for them um, mm -hmm. because we're all different and experience different things. So uh, thank you so much for, for saying that. Um, another question that we um, received is, can ADHD worsen after having children or is it, um, is it the case of so-called mom brain? Do you think hormones play a, a key, you know, maybe a, a thing in that, or is it more of a foggy brain because of the mom brain? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is it's actually a combination of the two, probably. I mean, I was relating to the hormone, the, the main periods of hormonal fluctuation in women, you know, after adolescence, I would probably say uh, pregnancy or childbirth is a major peak uh, uh, kind of time with the fluctuations in the hormones. So what can happen is not it's the tumultuous period with the hormones, not during your pregnancy itself, but also after childbirth, because that excess hormones have suddenly taken a deep dive. So you're going to start to feel anxious, you know, you get this kind of postnatal blues, you know, women start to have postnatal or postpartum depression. I mean, they did these studies and they found in ADHD women, uh, postpartum depression which was much higher in ADHD women, especially after the first childbirth. And wow. 
Yeah. And uh, one thing I have found in my own uh, coaching clients when I uh, talk about ADHD hormones is women who have had a traumatic childbirth can have more ADHD symptoms. So, you know, say they've had prolonged labor, uh, you know, they've had a C-section, for example. So anything that adds to the trauma of the childbirth can also worsen these ADHD symptoms. And the ADHD symptoms, you know, as you well know, it could be irritability, it could be brain fog, you know, all of these things. So you can imagine it's not just ADHD you have to kind of deal with. You have the fluctuations of the hormones and the kind of fog brain of the, you know, the mummy brain, plus the trauma of any childbirth, having a new baby. Uh, you know, ADHD women generally, I find they struggle to adapt very quickly to life changes. You know, major life events, that transitioning is very, it's not a very smooth, streamlined process, uh, which is, you know, something non-ADHDs struggle less with. You know, most people struggle with transition, but right. I think, you know, having a new baby and then I think affecting the sleep as well. So, you know, you have a new baby Maybe you're not going to sleep, you become more ratty, uh, ADHD symptoms, you know, worsen, they become magnified under a lens, you know, if you put under yeah. it. And, and, you know, you become more anxious, you're worried, not just about yourself, you have health anxieties about the baby as well. So it is a combination of things uh, that can happen. And, and they've also done research where they found women who had pre-existing anxiety or depression before pregnancy were more prone to getting postnatal or postmortem depression or generalized anxiety disorder. So I think it's just it's the two together. It's not just one or the other. And women who breastfeed, for example, you know, the breastfeeding has its own effect on the estrogen and progesterone hormones as well. So, you know, I think it is multifactorial. You know, there's so many factors at play, but it's definitely another peak period where if you were to draw a graph, you know, adolescence, pregnancy and childbirth would be the second, then you would come into perimenopause and menopause, which would be like three peaks and troughs where you would find these huge fluctuations. Yeah. You know, as I'm listening to you talk, another thing that comes to mind as well is if you experience um, sensory issues and having that extra mm -hmm. sensory of the touch and the the crying and all of the uh, toy, all of the things, you know, noises and things. And so um, I think that could possibly pay, play a part in that as well with the brain fog and just feeling overwhelmed and the anxious feelings and, you know, all the things that a lot of us do experience um, having children. So thank you so much for sharing yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, Trish. It's a sensory processing difficulty. They have SPD along with uh, kind of everything else that's going on. Like you said, you know, it's, it could be small things like the sound. It could right. be light. Light is a big one. You know, baby cries in the middle of the night. You yeah. switch the light on. That's enough to irritate you. You know, it could be that. And you mentioned the touch as well. That's a very good point, actually. So. Yeah, yeah. So something that just came to mind for me, and I don't know if the research knows, I mean, if there's any research on this, but when it comes to having your first child and first mm. pregnancy, does age matter? Like, does it matter whether you're 20 years old or 50 years old having your first baby as far as anxiety intensifying and the brain fog and the postpartum depression? Um I don't know if that makes sense what I'm asking, because sometimes it, it does seem like when you're having children much younger, mm -hmm. you know, let I don't know, let's say 20 years old, yeah. it does seem, and I know I'm just speaking from my own personal experience, it does seem that maybe there is more anxiety and depression afterward versus if you, versus a woman that waited until let's say 50 years old. And so I don't, I don't know if they're seeing like an age difference as far as how we respond to the pregnancy and after having our first baby. I mean, I think, you know, it's probably age could have an impact, but I don't think there are many studies which look purely at age because you see there are so many other factors at play. For example, your support network. You know, if you were young, you know, you were 20 and it was just you and your partner having your first baby and you didn't have any friends or family around to support you, you're definitely going to be more anxious and probably have postnatal depression. You know, first uh, pregnant childbirth are generally associated with postnatal depression anyway uh 
but you could get the older woman as well and they might have had a more longer period of fluctuations with anxiety and depression being treated for it being on a few different and uh, kind of antidepressants or anxiolytics during i don't know that 15 20 pe year period then they have the worries of you know i don't know is a child going to have any genetic defect because i'm an older mom so you know so it's a completely different but but the thing is they've got the experience of hindsight uh, you know they can learn they know more about themselves uh, the emotional regulation is probably a bit better in older mums compared to the younger mums. But say if that woman was on her own, she was a single mom at the peak of her career and had a first child in her late 40s or 50s, she would struggle as well. So I right. think, you know, you look at the psychosocial element of it. So it's the uh, psychiatric angle, the mental health aspects, but also the social element. Is she supported at work? Is she supported in her family by her peers? Does she have a, a close network of people, you know, like to help with childcare, for example? So I don't think there's any you know, younger moms do better than older moms or the other way around. Also family history, you know, if there's a familial history of anxiety or depression, or, you know, they're more likely to have it than someone with a family history of no anxiety or depression. So I think, you know, there's an element that genes play as well. But then you can kind of, uh, you know, look at nurture versus nature. So, you know, some of it is kind of genetic, but it's also down to your environment. And ADHD is, you know, for them, the environment the environment means a lot. So the, you know, the bed you sleep on, you know, the mattress, you know, how comfy it is, this, you know, and things that uh, Tish pointed out, you know, the, the right noise level, the lighting, uh, it could be, you know, the works, you know, work table, for example, you know, you have an adjustable desk height, you know, all those kind of things where your environment you know, and comfort is queen. And once you're comfortable in your environment, all these things can make it much better or worse. So if you have healthy childcare, your baby is settled. And, you know, and the more anxious, and generally as a family physician, I find the more anxious the mom is or the more depressed the mom is, the child becomes more, becomes more unwell. The infant has more problems like reflux or not sleeping. And, you know, so it gets transmitted to the baby as well. Then the baby keeps the mom awake. It's a bit of a vicious cycle you get caught up in. So you need to soothe both the baby and the mom. So it's not just one or the other. So I, I guess it down, boils down to kind of life coping skills. Uh, you know, routines and things as well. And again, the transition. Also, if you've had trauma, you know, as a child, if you've had a younger kind of trauma and PTSD and th things like that, that can have an impact on childbirth and pregnancy. So, you know, nothing pregnancy related as a child, but say if you've been hospitalized, had major surgery as a child, you know, they did studies, they found these girls who went through trauma in the developmental period they became adults then they struggled through pregnancy and childbirth so I don't think age alone is a predictor of how it affects uh, kind of the mood and ADHD and anxiety and things. That is really interesting one thing that comes to mind and I'm curious about um, when we're talking about ADHD and you know how hormones can make us feel a fill our symptoms a little bit worse. And after having a baby and all of the things that we go through, what is your recommendation on um, a, a young mother or mother actually having a baby and they start to feel this depression and they start to feel this anxiety? How long should a person go feeling this way um, before, you know, reaching out to their doctor or psychiatrist to figure out if they need medication or whatever it may be? Hmm. I mean, again, it depends. Uh, I would probably say with things like anxiety or mood disorders, uh, kind of pre-pregnancy evaluations and self-rating is a good way to assess. So what we, so say one of the things I would probably ask the woman is, you know, what were you like before you were pregnant? You know, how would you rate your uh, mood on a scale of one to 10 if 10 was the 10 was when you were the happiest and one was you were the saddest. So if they gave me a rating scale of, you know, they were probably, probably a one or two even before they were pregnant and then you ask them after the childbirth or you know if they're creating postnatal depression how do you feel now uh, and they say it is probably one so they're going to be at much higher risk because even their pre-pregnancy scores were much lower uh, compared to you know they're kind of on parallel with what they are now so they that that woman definitely needs help I wouldn't sit around waiting thinking it's the 
postnatal blues. Uh, but say someone was, you know, had a score of say eight or nine and they're really happy, had no previous anxiety or depression, and they got to a stage where they're feeling really low. So it's a stark contrast, you know, mm -hmm. someone scored nine before and now they're scoring a one. That mm -hmm. is also a, a red flag or it needs to trigger alarm bells. Okay, that's a bit unusual. So she's definitely got something related to the postmortem period, the postnatal period. So it could be that she's got postnatal depression and especially if it's her first pregnancy also if she's had a difficult childbirth you know she definitely needs to see a doctor you know it may mean referral to a psychiatrist maybe a psychologist there are rating scales that they used for postnatal depression so you know there's one called epds which is the edinburgh postnatal depression scale we use in the uk so you know you can score and rate how these women are. And again, you know, I would probably give it a few weeks, maybe six to eight weeks. If usually in the UK, they do the postnatal checks at week eight of the mother and the baby. And one of the things you assess is the mood. And if I feel the woman is quite flat in her affect, you know, she's more tearful, she's not coping, then I feel like she needs further evaluation, might need a bit of help. Uh, but yeah, I think kind of the eight to 12 week period is kind of the crucial time when you can kind of look, you know, what I think you need to have, help, get some help, get some uh, specialist intervention. Thank you. That is, that's so helpful. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. That's okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, there was, there was another topic that kind of came to mind, you know, just as a mother, myself, a mother of a daughter, um, mm -hmm. would you just, Met, I know we figured out you two have the same birthdays, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, which um, is awesome. Which this Saturday, this Saturday will be your birthday. So happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you very um, much. Well, I'm just thinking as a as a mother, I mean, she will be nine years old. So it's not like I'm going through certain things with her just yet. But I hear from moms that do, that have been going through this or once did before, you know, when you're a preteen and teen, it is very, very intense sometimes, and you don't know how to work through it. There's a lot of emotional dysregulation. Maybe you're crying a lot. And sometimes I think she doesn't have, AD she hasn't been diagnosed with ADHD, but we are thinking maybe she does. Mm -hmm. And part of me thinks, wow, I don't even know how I would help her through this time, you know, because as an adult, like when we're going through the PMS and the days leading up, I mean, sometimes we just want to explode and we, mm -hmm. and we don't, but you know, you look back to when you were a teenager and gosh, it was like, you were, you were just unleashing because you weren't, you didn't know how to, how to regulate yourself. And so I often hear this from moms, especially with daughters that have ADHD, it can be very challenging sometimes and I don't know if there's any suggestions or tips you have during those during those years on what the mother can do to help the daughter going through this time in her life hmm. I mean, I'm not a child psychiatrist by any means so I think my area of specialization in the topic is probably limited but from what I I mean ADHD has a familiar link so you know if there's ADHD in the family or the child is more likely to get it uh, but the thing I would probably say in a pre-teen uh, kind of age group like your daughters Brittany or like the younger girls I, I mean I'll say girls because you see uh, the boys are usually hyperactive so they get picked up very easily with ADHD but it's the girl who's you know quieter but could be more talkative but it, you know it could be it's more the combined symptoms that tend to present but usually they are magnified only probably around the adolescence. I, I think with younger children, usually pre-teens, I think one thing that would definitely help, I mean, my my ADHD coach, uh, she used to be a behavioral specialist for children. And, you know, one of the things that she always recommends is routine, structure and routine. Okay. So two, because, because at the end of the day, so if kids don't, and this is something we do as adults if we have not been given it in childhood. Uh, so, you know, if you kids don't have a structure and routine, so, you know, okay, this is eight o'clock, this is your time for bed. Or, you know, I'm just picking a random time. I'm not saying that's the best time. I don't have kids, so I wouldn't know. But, uh, you know, a certain routine to it and uh, 
you go to bed, you, know, you brush your teeth, this is when you do your homework. I think the ADHD brain or not, if you are a child, they need to learn structure and routine because this serves them well into adulthood when they have a lot of things on their plate. You know, it's not just life. They have to manage kind of work or with their studying, they need to manage their work projects. So they need to have the structure and routine and it's their brain. It needs to learn. It's a learned skill and it's very hard to teach an adult that skill i mean you know ad, adult adhd diagnosis yes you can work with adhd coach and you can pick on these skills but all these things are best taught in childhood when they have the structured routine but also giving them that leeway i think flexibility you know you know especially with their girls and you know they might start their period in a few years time you know i got my first period at nine for example so that is pretty young you know for i never expected to get my period and no one told me I would get my period at nine and it's such a shock to the system but I think sitting down with her and just telling her you know it's okay because that emotional regulation I think women and especially young girls shame is a huge factor okay and they're not told it's safe to express emotions boys they can throw a tantrum moms are fine with it girl she throws a tantrum they go no 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 you know, you can't be like that. What what will people think? So it's kind of frowned upon for young girls to express their emotions. So as a result, you know, a lot of ADHD girls who are not diagnosed in childhood, adolescence, they go into adulthood, they probably had ADHD, but they were not given the freedom to express who they were, uh, you know, how they feel. So because that's drummed down, and that's a reason why these things get hidden. So it gets suppressed too much that they don't kind of reveal these things up until later on in life when they really struggle. So I think for young preteens, you know, giving them structure, giving them routine, giving them the freedom to express how they feel and telling them it's safe to express their emotions, you know, nurture them when they're upset. Uh, you know, I think those are the main things that you can do. And it's part of the nurturing from the mother. And uh, I think Gabo Mate, you know, the uh, I don't know if you heard about it, but he did a talk recently about how, um, you know, how trauma in childhood or not having that nurturing, supportive uh, family system, especially from the mother, makes girls uh, more prone to getting ADHD. So it is that fine giving them that safe space where they can be themselves and they don't have to be like their younger or older brother because boys and girls are different and it's okay to be themselves. And if they like drawing a painting, let them go and do that. They don't like sports and that's fine. Or, you know, they might feel like more sweets during, you know, once they get into the adolescent period, you know, saying it's okay. You don't shame them for being a certain way, looking a certain way. And I think, you know, body changes as well with the adolescents and girls get shamed a lot. You know, they start getting breasts or they look different, they get spots. So women become very sensitive to their parents. And social media makes everything worse, you know, because you look at that perfectly filtered photograph of a girl. I, I think Victoria Beckham, she got told off because she dressed her young girl in a very slinky dress for a function. And a lot of these women created hoo-ha on social media. Why did she dress her like that? I, you know, I'm sure if it was a boy, her son she dressed, I don't think women, I mean, people would have had that problem, but because it was her young daughter, she dressed in a certain way, people had opinions. And I think girls are very sensitive to opinions of others, unlike boys, because of that RSD, you know, rejection sensitivity is high in girls, ADHD or not. They pick up on the things that people tell them, what they hear from others, uh, oh, why does she look like this? Why is her hair like that? Why is she worn that thing? Uh, you know, why does she talk like that? And you know, I moved from uh, the Middle East to India, you know, at the age of ten, and uh, the girls and boys in my school used to make fun of me. Why does Susan speak with such a funny accent? She doesn't speak our language with a normal accent because she's still anglicized or Americanized or whatever. And you know, all these things hurt you because it's like then you don't want to open your mouth because you're going to judge yourself you know self-judgment is the worst and girls especially they're very uh, impressionable at that age so you want to be really careful what you tell them what people tell them at that very young age uh, but I think you know structure routine giving them the freedom to be themselves and giving them the freedom to express themselves thank you so much that is so helpful and the message that you are 
are saying here is it's really important, honestly, for everyone, especially young girls and boys. Um, you know, what I'm hearing is don't compare yourself to others. And I know that's easier said than done, but I think you hit on something also that's, um, you know, that a lot of us struggle with is the RSD, which is the rejection sensitive mm -hmm. dysphoria. So um, I, I do appreciate you, um, you know, talking about all those important topics when it comes mm -hmm. to girls, especially. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think with the comparison as well, Tish, you know, I'm one of a twin and we are identical. And, you know, growing up, you know, we were compared for each and everything. I mean, having a sister as well, but, you know, having a twin, you right. know, why is her hair slightly longer than yours? Right. Why did you get one grade less than her? Or why are you slightly fatter than the, you know, it's like very tiny comments made by uh, caregivers, could be family members, you know, all those things, they stick. But at the end of the day, you know, when you go to adulthood, you still use those benchmarks to compare, you know, my sister had to be very competitive, but, you know, now you learn to be more accommodating and you don't, you can't be her, you know, you made you unique for a reason and you just have to be you and the right. best version of you so for all those young girls and moms of young girls let them be the best version of them don't try and turn them into someone else it won't work and I don't think it should be done yeah and I know that just knowing from what I see with our audience there are some like a small percentage are young very young people which I assume there might be some teen girls that will listen to this and you know they're probably hearing words like PMS and PMDD and they're thinking well what exactly is PMDD and how do I know what I have and what is what so and you know what uh, young women as well I'm sure there's some in their 20s and 30s that may not know the difference between the two so mm -hmm. how how would you know well I guess um I guess, first of all, what is PMDD and how is it different from PMS? And how would you know if you were having that versus just a little bit of PMS? Yeah, so PMS is classically uh, what we call as premenstrual syndrome it happens in most women. I would say in all girls and all women, but the ex it's more the extent to which it affects you uh, that would determine how disabling it is for you. So premenstrual syndrome is the kind of the cluster of symptoms that you can get kind of in the run up to the period. So it can start as early as a week before your period. Usually presents as you know irritability. It could be mood swings. It could be a bit of fatigue. So I would probably say they're more kind of low to mid level symptoms on a scale when you compare it with PMDD. I'm not saying PMS is not disabling, but I'm saying compared on the spectrum, if you look at PMS would be uh, on a low to moderate level scale. Uh, however, PMDD, it's a hormonal health condition, and that is seen in a smaller proportion of women. Uh, you know, I think they did studies, they found, you know, of all menstruating women, about 48, I think, uh, percent of women can get PMS, but the number of women who get PMDD, which is a more severe uh, version of symptoms, is 3 to 9 percent. So it's less than 10 percent that you get PMDD. Uh, but it is, again, similar. It's in the week leading up to the menses, which is the onset of the period. And for PMDD, you know, there's a DSM-5 criteria. You have to meet certain symptoms from each criteria for someone to be diagnosed with having PMDD. Usually one of the category A symptoms would be things like your mood. Uh, so it could be irritability. It could be hopelessness. It could be a depressive mood or it could be anxiety. And then in those category B symptoms, you have other things like decreased interest in activities, difficulty concentration, you know, your fatigue, sleep changes, feeling overwhelmed, you know, appetite changes. Uh, and also you get the physical symptoms like the PMS with the breast tenderness, bloating, weight gain, kind of joint pains and things like that. Uh, Usually with the PMDD, because some women can go through to full-blown depression or even become really suicidal in the period running up to the, uh, and because of suicide risk associated with the premenstrual period, that is, uh, you know, that probably needs to be treated. It needs to be seen by a psychiatrist. They might need some uh, medications to help with the serotonin as well in this period, but it's mainly those 
uh, two things that can affect. I mean, it affects about 92% PMDD of autistic women and about 46% of ADHD women, apparently. So that's what one of the studies did. And they found you know, it could be there could be a genetic link uh, with women who get uh, PMDD and ADHD. Uh, there could be a hormone sensitivity, but also women who are greater sensory sensitivity were more likely to be affected by PMDD. So, you know, one of the things like Tish mentioned was the sensory processing. So if they have sensory sensitivity, they probably are more likely to have PMDD. And again, the PMDD might not be just treating with antidepressants. It could be lifestyle changes, but also uh, contraception and hormones can make a huge impact on how you feel as well. That is so helpful. And it makes a lot of sense. It really does. If you think about it, um, when, especially when you're talking about the sensory issues, um, yeah. it definitely makes a, a lot of sense there. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, now that we kind of went into teen years, younger women actually going through their menstrual cycles, let's kind of go into maybe perimenopause and menopause, because we do get, we do get a lot of questions on that. And actually I just had a message the other day. They were saying that they wish they would have known mm. what was going on or, or that possibly it was the ADHD along with the perimenopause and menopause that was making everything worse because she was very depressed and very suicidal at that time. And I hmm. thought, oh my gosh. And I forget what the statistic was where suicide rates must be a bit higher than usual during this time in mm -hmm. a woman's life. And mm -hmm. it breaks my heart again, because we can't help this. Like it, it happens. There's the constant fluctuations and time hmm. periods in our lives. And what, what can we do as women during the perimenopausal state and going through menopause itself. Hmm. I mean, just to distinguish between kind of perimenopause and menopause. So uh, perimenopause is the period in the run-up or leading up into menopause when the hormones start to change and wane off. Uh, the period can last for anything between two to 12 years. So it's quite a long period. Uh, in some women, it can start as you know, as early as your 30s, uh, usually, I would say, uh, more likely in your 40s, early 40s, uh, and then you would get uh, sort of menopause, sort of, the average age of menopause is 51 in the Western world. Usually they find that you are women of color, so uh, South Asian women, Afro-Caribbean, Hispanic women, they have menopause a few years earlier compared to Caucasian women. So that's what one of the studies okay. showed. Yeah, I mean, again, because we don't know that, and I didn't know this, you know, from my own personal experience, and, you know, I probably, looking back, uh, by my perimenopause symptoms probably started in my late 30s, but the penny dropped only two years ago, you know, in my mid-40s. So, you know, for me, being a physician, being a clinician, for me to not register, you know, what I could be perimenopause, you know, that's such a... Uh, I, you know, I still find, you know, find it really difficult to come to terms with that. But, you know, what I'm trying to say is, you know, perimenopause, it could start off with very subtle symptoms like your hair changing. I started getting adult acne, you know, in my late 30s, and I've never had acne in my whole life. And I ended up seeing a gynecologist, uh, seeing a dermatologist. They gave me all sorts of antibiotics and other hormonal stuff, and they didn't you know, it didn't dawn on them either, uh, you know, it could be perimenopause. But, you know, for me, uh, in the inside, I knew something is changing, you know, my weight started to change, my hair started to thin. Uh, I mean, coming to the ADHD per se point of view, you, you, it's usually kind of your 40s uh, when your kids are diagnosed with ADHD. So a lot of women that come to me, it's usually when the kids have been diagnosed with ADHD that they have gone and sought diagnosis for themselves because they, they can see some of the common symptoms between them and their kids. So, you know, you could either get uh, mothers presenting in midlife because their kids have been diagnosed with uh, ADHD or what uh, ADHD can be unmasked during perimenopause. That's my finding as well. So women who have had latent or hidden symptoms of ADHD most of their life, it suddenly it kind of unravels itself. 
and it's like it's not you know the brain fog so but you get a common overlap of symptoms especially the cognitive symptoms so your irritability your brain fog or you know mood swim so there's a huge overlap so it's very hard to know okay is it adhd is it menopause some women think you know they're getting early onset dementia you know because of the memory loss and you know finding it difficult to organize things and things that they could do so easily so it's a combination of uh, presentations you can have with perimenopause and adhd i mean there's been a huge interest in this topic in the uk especially in the last year you know they've run out of both hormonal medications and adhd meds at the same time in the last year because of the exponential rise in women coming forward with these symptoms and you know the studies are you know few and far between i know janet Bassestein, one of the uh, researchers on attitude she did some uh, kind of studies with women and adhd and perimenopause but even then the numbers are so limited in terms of uh, you know, how many women are diagnosed and there's no actual number to say what proportion of ADHD women present in menopause. So it's, it's more anecdotal, I would say, and more research is needed uh, in this area. But it's mainly, it's the estrogen dopamine volatile combination, which actually leads to this issue with ADHD and perimenopause kind of worsening each other. And what type of hormonal um, medications are so, so say for, yeah, so if someone is perimenopausal, then you would uh, prescribe hormonal therapy. I think it's called HT in the US. In the UK, it's called as HRT or hormone replacement therapy. And classically, you would want to replace the estrogen and progesterone, the two major female hormones. You definitely need the estrogen because that's the main modulator for dopamine, which is the chemical messenger. And the dopamine lacking in ADHD is the one that causes the brain fog, the problems with the executive functioning. So you would normally treat with hormone replacement therapy with the estrogen and progesterone. You can't give a woman estrogen on its own because of its effect on the womb. So you need the progesterone to protect the womb from the effects of the estrogen. So classically, if they had perimenopause and ADHD, you would want to give them hormone replacement if they can take it. You know, there are instances, uh, you know, like breast cancer or a few other reasons why they can't have HRT. Uh, but if they can, that would probably be one of the things. I mean, I had uh, recently read a study. They found, you know, women who were diagnosed with ADHD in perimenopause or midlife, even treating them with hormone replacement uh, removed the need for ADHD medications or stimulants. Yeah. Wow. Because, you know, that estrogen itself, yeah, it helps to increase the dopamine level. It keeps the dopamine circulating in the system for much longer. It also increases the number of dopamine receptors in the brain, uh, the estrogen does. So even giving estrogen to a woman would kind of help. You know, even like estrogen and long COVID, there's so many studies in women who had long COVID. It's the lack of estrogen starting to cause things like brain fog and women who were on hormone replacement develop less long COVID. Okay. Uh, yeah, so you know, so there is that whole correlation. So you are not taking the hormones just for your body; it's also for the brain. It's a huge part to protect the brain and to, especially if you have ADHD, you want to have it if you can take it. That is so interesting. So I've had a full, complete hysterectomy, and I do take um, I'm aware estrogen patch, and so um, I find all of this so I'm intrigued, and I even on my own time want to learn a little bit more about it. So. Um, but it all makes sense. It definitely all makes sense. So, yeah. No, exactly. And it could be, you know, perimenopause. So it could be surgical menopause. So if you've had a hysterectomy like yourself or some women, they get early menopause, like due to premature ovarian failure, you know, as early as late 20s. I've had women, you know, it could be extreme times of stress. They going to menopause so you 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 need to protect the brain and the body uh, with the estrogen from that point on because otherwise it's going to have you know they did studies they found women uh, with perimenopause and menopause who took hrt or hormone replacement went on lesser to develop dementia like alzheimer's and strokes compared to women who went on any hormone replacement so it just shows how you know lisa mosconi the uh, the neuroscientist you know she's written a book called xx brain and she has kind of does a very pictorial description of how the brain looks when the estrogen is lacking and what it does to memory and you know wow. cognition and brain fog so 
yeah it's not just one thing so you have to look at the woman as a whole you right. know not just the adhd side right. but also the hormonal side so which is why i think you know that holistic looking at the woman is the bit where you know a lot of services fall down that that huge gap where women slip through the net because you treat one or the other not both mm-hmm. right right well dr varghese i think we will likely have a part two with you because I feel like we could go for another hour. And I think this is also extremely beneficial for everyone to just learn and hear from you. And I appreciate you so much for taking the time and energy and effort to come on here and answer some of these questions. I, I don't know if you have any last, last bit of suggestions or tips that you would like to, that you you would like to give. I mean, I think one important tip is there's a lot of misinformation out there, you know, out of social media and, you know, on YouTube, it could be, so you need to kind of get specialist help if you think you're going through periods of issues with ADHD and hormones. So, and again, you see, I find it is such a fragmented approach a lot of specialists have because it's the gynecologist or the OB guy treating the uh, menopause and then it's the psychiatrist who's treating the ADHD. So you look at two parts of a woman, not as a whole. And that's where, you know, you know, the coaching I provide is for to look at the woman as a whole, you know, treat both the body and the mind and use the how hormone fluctuations, how it affects ADHD and the area of, you know, the deep dive which you need. And so if you're not sure, you know, you should always ask for help. You should ask for a second opinion. And there's no single answer. You know, there's going to be a lot of trial and error. It is a lifelong journey with ADHD and hormones. So, you know, you're, you have to be prepared. You, be, you have to be in it for the long run. But it's never too late to get diagnosed, even though, you know, those women out there who think, you know, uh, what is the point of getting diagnosed with ADHD in your late 30s or 40s? I don't think it's, it's never too late. It's about knowing your ADHD brain and what your unique brand of ADHD is. It comes with its own superpowers. If you know what brand you are, then you know how to use it and you can maximize the positives and minimize the negatives. So get help and if you're not sure, you know, ask an expert. So, and it's going to be a combination of things. There's no one answer fits all there. That is great advice. Thank you so, so much uh, for being here. We appreciate it. And just like what Brittany said, we would love to have you back for a part two because I have so many more questions to ask you. And so thank you so much. And Brittany, as always, thank you uh, for having this discussion and um, coordinating all of this. So thank you so much for um, all of your help with everything. So, yeah. Yes, thank you both. And just for anyone listening, we will have contact information in the description notes on how you can follow Dr. Varghese email. However, we'll have that information in the description. Yeah. All right. Well, until the next episode. Until the next episode.